This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Christian Terbish. Welcome back. I'm Christian Tavish. This is Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. Today we're talking about education. And in the first half of the show, I had the pleasure of talking to René Patton, who is the director of U.S. Public Sector Education at Cisco. Now going into the second half of the show, I want to welcome my second guest, Leah Belsky, who is vice president of global enterprise development at Coursera, the company that pioneered massive open online courses. Welcome, Leah. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Leah, I take some pride in the fact that I was one of the first Coursera instructors when I launched my operations management course back in 2012. Uh, back then, there were five courses. How many courses does Coursera offer today? Absolutely. So we've grown tremendously. We've got over 2,000 platform on the courses on the platform and have now expanded to a global community of over 31 million learners as well. Now, other than my course, uh, don't, not to put you into uh, pressure here, but do you have like a favorite course? Um, my favorite course is actually one of the global favorites, the course called Learning How to Learn. Have you, have you taken it? Have you heard of it? I've heard of it. I've, uh, shame on me, I've not taken it, uh, but I've, I've heard of great things about it. Yeah, well, it's a fantastic course, which really takes a look from an angle of cognitive and neuroscience and really lets you to step back and figure out how it is that you can dive into learning and it's particularly relevant given that so many of the people on the Coursera platform today are not necessarily in school but have finished school and are really trying to dive back into their own learning journeys so Leah, I, I recommend you take a look. Uh, Leah talk more about Coursera I mean for those of us not familiar with it uh, who does it serve uh, and, and how does it work? Absolutely so Coursera is one of the largest um, educational platforms on the web it provides courses from uh, over 140 top global universities um, and a number of different university credentials. So we include courses, we have online degrees, and we serve um, a global community of learners, both through a consumer business, um, as well as over a thousand enterprise companies who partner with Coursera to upskill and reskill their populations. So talk about how that works out as a student. So I, uh, I'm a student. I want to take a course in learning how to learn or in, in Greek mythology, and I sign up at Coursera. What, what happens next? So what happens next is you, you pick a course, um, and then most of our learners are actually coming to us through our mobile app. So once you're enrolled, you'll be presented with a syllabus um, on your phone, either on an app or on a desktop, and each of the classes will be broken down into short snippets of video, of readings, of quizzes, um, the average module is about seven to ten minutes, and it'll basically be a learning experience that you can consume at any time, anywhere, whether you're commuting, whether you're up at, at night. And as you proceed through this learning experience, you'll get to both interact um, with peers in global forums as well as mentors who are active in many of the courses, giving feedback and engaging with learners. So and should you finish, which we hope, yeah. Which you, I hope you, I was just heading there. Go go on. When you yeah, finish. So for those when you finish, so for those who finish, you earn a, a certificate from the university from which you've taken the course, and this certificate has value in the world. It's actually one of the most popular, the Coursera certificates are one of the most popular on LinkedIn, and you can take this 
this certificate, put it on your CV, put it on your LinkedIn profile so that the whole world knows that you've earned these skills. One critique that has always driven me nuts, but a common critique is these low completion rates. And I've always argued, that, well, of course, if you let me enroll for free, why should I finish the course? But um, from the people committed to or reasonably committed and going like at least the first quarter through the course to the people finish, mm-hmm. what's the kind of retention rates of, of, of people who, who started the course towards uh, their certificate? So the retention rates are about 60% if you look at paid learners and you also look at enterprise learners. And, you know, it's an interesting, as we've dug more into this, it's an interesting. Some people learn because they want to complete a course and they want to get a certificate. Other le- others learn because they want specific skills and so they're sampling a bunch of different courses. So we actually feel quite good about the completion rates among um, committed learners. Another thing to know is that a huge population of learners is now going through our online degrees. And there, the retention um, rates are breaking the industry standards. There are about 93% of of learners who are proceeding through our degrees um, are continuing and progressing. Leah, would you feel offended if I would call Coursera be uh, as a retailer of of courses? Is is the term retailer something that feels inappropriate for you or...? Because um, you're not cre- you're not creating these yeah. courses in the sense that it was uh, it's the universities, it's, it's professors that are creating courses and put them into your store, and you're doing the tremendously important job of matching that that course with a learner. But you, other than providing the platform, you're not producing yourself. Do you are you a yeah. retailer, or is that missing the point? No, I think in many ways we are a real retailer. We think of ourselves as a global educational marketplace, but not an open marketplace. Um, like you might see it as Craigslist, something much more akin to Amazon, where you have highly curated, high-value products um, that are there because people have reviewed them and they're getting results from them. But absolutely, we are the intermediary. It's our partners who are creating the content, both university partners and top-tier technology companies like Google and IBM. And we think there's huge value in the world of being this intermediary platform between learners, educators, and companies. And that's where we, that's where we focus. How does this process of curation and creating a course works now? So I have loving memories back then in uh, in the old days, so to say, when I put my course online and I got stuck. I would just set up a Skype meeting with your CEO, Daphne Koller, and she would help me with, with the problems. I would imagine with 2,000 courses, that doesn't work anymore. So, so how much labor is involved on your end if there is an enterprising, a, an ambitious, a motivated, a talented instructor from a university who wants to put his or her course up on Coursera? How much, how much work is there still involved? Um, so certainly these days most content creators are not getting on the phone with our CEO. But there's many content creators now that are engaging with the platform without talking to us at all. We have um, technical support folks who can get on the call and answer questions. But the platform has advanced now that a lot of the pedagogical advice Um, The sequencing is built into the technology. Where we do get on the phone is we have a team of teaching and learning specialists who are often before a course is launched, more at the conceptual stage, helping professors and helping educators figure out how to break down and structure the course so that it can be most effective on the platform. But otherwise, it's largely self-serve. It's self-serve, though, the thing that, well, one of the things I also enjoyed was your community aspects, right? Because you have uh, then the, the, your platform is a technology where people don't just interact with me or my teaching assistants, but they interact with mentors and each other. Tell us more about that part. Yeah, absolutely. So 
um, those who are teaching on Coursera brought into the community in a couple of points. Um, one is up front, where we hold content creation workshops where you're exposed to learners, you're able to define the target learner that you're looking to educate, you're exposed to other teachers, you're exposed to um, expert um, pedagogy specialists. And then once courses are launched, we often have our professors being active participants in the forums, engaging with students, engaging with mentors, getting feedback from mentors. And then what we do is we have our data scientists and our pedagogy folks look at the feedback from learners. So we're in touch with you throughout the journey so that if there are certain modules or certain quizzes that learners are not getting value out of, you can actually change them up and change them and update them along the way. So for us, typically somewhat ego-centered instructors and faculty, I, I think many of us, when we started, we always looked at Coursera online teaching only as the second good best thing, right? The, the real thing was to, of course, come to our classes. What I was always puzzled by or shocked by, maybe even, is how many learners actually prefer the video format over the classroom format, right? Because there is something called a fast-forward button in video learning or a skip button. Uh, and for the more interested learner, there's also a rewind button. And so there's this opportunity to learn anytime, anywhere. Um, so you tell us a little bit about who is enrolling the, in these courses, because they are not the typical college learners, right? Yeah, absolutely. So our average learner is tends to be beyond college. It's, these are BA students, a vast majority of which are um, globally around the world. And these are learners who who want to be able to learn flexibly while they're at a job, while they're doing other things. Um, that said, we've seen a huge transformation in the way in which online and video-oriented learning is used, um, even within the standard educational communities. I was, a fr- you know, I was talking to a friend the other day who has a son at Stanford. Two of the three courses that he's taking at Stanford this quarter are online. Um, so we see online learning progressing, and one day we suspect all education will be online, and just in the same way that you know, we used to talk about e-commerce for things that we bought online versus things that we, we bought in a store. Today, it's all just commerce. Uh, so, yeah, so that's our perspective. Well, so I, I love that part when people make predictions, and I, I've made enough predictions myself to know how painfully wrong I was on most of them. But <laughs> so your hypothesis there, Leah, is that all teaching will be online in the same way that you would now only in rare instances go and buy a book in a bookstore. Again, I, I love bookstores, and don't get me wrong, but the, the, we, have seen, we have seen the light. We have seen the new way of doing things. So uh, is that, is that, did I hear you correctly on that prediction? Um, so not quite. I think that all courses in the future will include some online elements. So I would wager that in every undergraduate course, say over the next decade, you will have learners engaging and students engaging online in some form, whether it be an online article, whether it be an online video. So it's not that in-person learning or book-based learning is going to completely disappear, but that people are going to flexibly move between learning online and learning in the classroom. And it's starting to change, and it has been changing the way in which in-person and classroom time is used. That's, That's the prediction. And that means from the workforce perspective, there is, how does this change the need for workforce in education? Well, so what it does is it does two things. From a workforce perspective, you know, companies have already always spent a tremendous amount on, on learning and educating their, their folks. But 
you know, upwards of about $1,500 per employee per year. That's a standard investment in learning. But a lot of that was in person. And so it was limited to either very critical functional roles, whether that be learning how to stock shelves at a store or whether it be learning how to be a cashier or to senior executives who are all flown into one place and and given an executive education class. What the online learning does is it allows people to be able to, corporations to be able to educate their workforce at scale and to make these courses available to many, many more individuals on a much broader array of topics. The other thing that we're seeing is because online learning can be deployed more expansively, companies are starting to focus on core and foundational skills that they think workers will need in the future and deploying them to, to um retain them. I'm so, happy to give you two examples. Sure, go ahead. Yeah. So I'll give you two examples of the way in which we see online learning being increasingly used in, in a corporate context. Um, one is a, is a company named AXA. So AXA is one of the largest international insurers. And what they've decided to do is to make um, Coursera available to all, all their learners. They've mapped Coursera to specific skill sets that they think the insurance industry and people in their company need to attain in the future. And look, these are insurers. These are actuaries who realize that their career is going to be completely disrupted by the advent of new data and data scientists. And so they realize to be impactful in the insurance industry in particular, they need to develop new skills in data, in digital marketing, in business analysts. Um, so that's one great example. Another great example is a company named L'Oreal. You know, L'Oreal is one of the biggest fashion brands in the world. Yeah, they need to be very concerned about startup um, cosmetic brands like Glossier or others that will just launch on the web with very little brand marketing and suddenly become the great new big thing. So they too have launched Coursera to their um, to their employee populations so that their employees can learn things like digital marketing, can learn things like data, and learn how to innovate the way in which the latest startup companies might do as well. So these are two examples of Coursera partners that are partnering with us both to engage their employees but also to serve very, very specific business goals so that they can ensure that their workers have all the skills they need for a new economy and that the companies as a whole can continue to innovate. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I'm chatting with Leah Belsky, Vice President of Global Enterprise Development at Coursera, and we're talking about really the future of learning. And Leah, you gave us two use cases of how uh, a corporation might benefit from training their workforce. I think both of those are great examples where you could just get more learning for the dollar invested into the employee. Um, there's a second element that one that I've kind of given some thought with my my colleague and friend Carl Ulrich uh, on the kind of the workforce for us as educators, and we we kind of liked uh, compared the scenario a little bit of what happened to the, the clowns in the old days, right? The clowns in the old days, you had a certain, every village had their clown on the local marketplace that tried to be funny and was entertaining a small crowd there. And then there came the movie theater, and with the movie theater, you had some clowns that made a lot of money, and they were really funny and gave access to jokes to people around the world. But most clowns went out of business, and so I'm just getting nervous about my job here. <laughs> um. Look, I think there will always be a place for top-tier... Thank you. You didn't have to say it this way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, you're not a clown, but you are You are a professor, and I do think there's always going to be a role in a place for institutions like Wharton and other universities where that have the privilege of educating people who have the time to take off and the resources to pursue 
um, education on site for many years. Um, that say, you know, we're looking at a workforce where over 300 million people over the next few years will be going into the global economy. And it's very clear that institutions like Wharton and other top tier schools are not going to be able to have the scale or the resources, nor do they have the mission to educate this broader workforce. So that's what we're really talking about. We're talking about making education like one might experience that we're in available more broadly um, to learners and to employees and to individuals who don't have the opportunity to go through this tiny, tiny funnel of established land-based um, top-tier educational institutions. Now, Leah, you said this in, for me personally, at least a very reassuring manner, but I also did sense a certain threat in there, right? So you said, like, if you are at Wharton, if you are at Stanford, there will be unlimited demand for your services and you will stay employed till retirement. But there's a certain threat that if you are at Southern Nebraska Catholic, and, and sorry, I, maybe there's even institutions like Southern Nebraska Catholic, but if you are at a small school that is not ranked in the top 100, 500 of the university world, that somebody sits there and says, like, well, I could either go to that school or I could get a Stanford education for free by enrolling in a MOOC. Isn't there a certain threat element in there? Look, I think there there is a threat for our lower-tier universities, particularly those that haven't been able to find a business model that both ensures that those who invest in a degree are going to get um, jobs and skills for the future. And, and we see this again and again with many of the sort of lower-tier schools closing or changing their business model. So there is a threat. But I think the threat is one about return on investment of what they're currently providing. Um, MOOCs, I wouldn't say, are the thing that's really posing the main threat to us. To those types of institutions. Now, what I do think is a threat is what we're starting to focus on now, which is online degrees. Um, so a big, huge focus of Coursera is to make available top-tier, scalable degrees at about a quarter of the price. Um, we've started with about 10 master's degrees that were recently um, announced and have one BA degree that's coming online as well in computer science. And yes, if these degrees prove to be effective, which they certainly are so far, I think this type of education will be a really aggressive competitor to um, institutions that cost four or five times as much and require require learners to take off from work for four or five years and pay pay tuition to be able to attend. So there there is a threat. So with Coursera and maybe to some extent even because of Coursera, this concept of the flipped classroom has gotten a lot of attention where maybe my friends at uh, Southern Nebraska Catholic and my producer, my dad's just double-check, there is fortunately no Southern Nebraska Catholic, but uh, that school is now uh, basically, they might just be in trouble because people go in on Coursera. The alternative is they could offer Coursera in the content and they would focus their own teaching basically on the mentoring, the motivation, the uh, basically everything that comes with a flipped classroom where you help the learners digest the content. Is Do, do you see many Coursera courses being used that way on at smaller universities in a flipped classroom environment where it's another faculty who is basically acting as a role as a moderator for this content? You know, we do see many faculty members using courses content. Right now, it tends to be within the universities that have created the content. We have a couple big global educational partners. So there's a massive university system in India that uses Coursera courses and licenses them for the students. There's another big um, university system in Cambodia that does the same. But it tends to be in the same way that 
you know, you would have a bookstore on campus sponsored by Barnes and Noble or Amazon and send your students to to acquire those courses. And those in those examples, we don't see the use of Coursera as fundamentally changing the business model um, of the university, though it may be changing the way that professors teach and engage their students. So you mentioned this idea of a return on investment uh, earlier on, and this, since this is business radio, at some point we have to talk about money. Um, so how does Coursera make money? Absolutely. So Coursera makes money um, prim- through three different ways. Um, one, we charge fee- a subscription fee for our courses to consumers who choose to purchase those courses. It's about $50 a month, and then it's discounted in, in other other regions. Um, second is we make money by partnering with companies um, who roll out these courses to their employee bases and pay Coursera recurring license fee. Um, and three, we make um, money through our online degree partnerships, where students who pay tuition for the online degrees, largely paying it directly to the university, then um, we then share in that that revenue as well. So it used to be uh, the kind of we love learning, and I, I hope the slogan has not changed. But is it fair to say that as the business matured and you've proven with the number of learners, the number of courses, there is really a big opportunity here? Is it fair to say that the last couple of years have been a little bit more on the business emphasis? I think it's both. You know, what I personally love is Coursera, and I'm someone who's come both from the international development sort of philanthropic both as well as hardcore startup environment is that we're seeing a correlation between the revenue we're able to drive as well as the expansion of global access. And for sure, Coursera has honed in on a business model that's going to be incredibly powerful and now allowing us to scale this company. But in so scaling, we're also able to push these courses, you know, through marketing dollars to more and more learners who might never have known about Coursera, never had the opportunity to learn in the way they now can. If you think about any university, I think there's always a certain privilege that we have in the university, especially if the university sits on on big endowment, as we we have the luxury of of being here at Penn, where certain courses play in more money than others, so to say, right? I mean, if you look at... uh, teaching subtleties of the Bavarian language in Philadelphia here, you might basically not get a lot of tuition dollars out of that course, and you have to bring in a Bavarian teacher uh, for fairly big resources, versus if you're teaching a certain course like Introduction into Microeconomics, there are basically there are many students, and it might not even cost you a lot of delivering this. Um, when you think about courses that you want to have in your portfolio, how important is that element of uh, of the kind of the financial value, the the business value, the, the the things that again we in the university world have gone through, but it's a little broader than just learning. It's really like professional skills. It's really the 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 people the the, the market segment in the education where people are willing the most to spend the most money for. Yeah, no, it's a great question. You know, when we look at what type of content to produce and courses to produce, we're essentially looking at demand. And so what you basically can look at is both historical trends on the platform as well as trends in the labor market. And so in some cases, it ends up being courses in data science and business fundamentals, skills that have already been flagged in the broader economy. But part of the reason we also expanded our portfolio beyond the universities to bring in companies is that we've also seen a demand for really applied content that are not the type of skills that universities have traditionally um, taught. So to give you an example, one of our major partners right now is Google. Um, Google has launched both a specialization, a, a certificate in 
information technology, which is designed for learners who have no technology experience to go from zero to within eight months, being able to have a full career as an information, um, as an IT technologist in a company, as well as with the Google Cloud team. Google Cloud has realized that in order to expand their economy and expand their ecosystem of skilled professionals who can use cloud, they actually need to train technologists in core cloud fundamental courses. Um, so we on people like Google to complement the foundational um, learning that we're seeing the universities provide. How do you think of your competitors, or do you think about uh, firms like uh, Lynda.com or edX as competitors, or what is your relationship to them, or where do they fit into your mental model? Um, we, we see all these, these other companies as part of a broader ecosystem, and you know, we see everyone rising over time. I would say in the, in the enterprise space in particular, whereas people like Lynda and Udemy tend to have more of a catalog approach where companies will make available a big catalog of skills to their employees, Coursera is brought in a more strategic pointed way when businesses have very specific skills that they want to develop within their workforce. And they want to motivate learners to study in a deeper way, not just a five-minute video on Excel, but to actually take a course for a month or two and develop crew credentials and experience in a field like data science or machine learning. Um, so we see a nice overlap uh, among all these companies and have really seen sort of the unique role that Coursera has to play with its university partnerships in this broader educational technology ecosystem. So for you going forward, it's really the act of curation and finding a certain product market fit that is critical from just being a catalog provider? Yeah, it's two things. One, it's about ability to curate and allow us to expose very specific skill-based content. And two, it's about focusing on credentials and making available credentials from our top-tier partners for people who want to both learn but also earn a credential and have a true impact on their careers moving forward. Says Leah Belsky, the Vice President of Global Enterprise Development at Coursera. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.